Christmas. Good to see everybody. Uh, we're in a Christmas series uh, looking at the virgin birth, and last week we saw how that impacted the life of Christ theologically. Uh, we gave three reasons for uh, why the virgin birth is an essential doctrine. Uh, the first of those being that it's predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. So we saw uh, 750 years before Jesus ever came onto the scene, one of the messianic expectations was that this Messiah would be born of a virgin. And so Jesus fulfills that. So that's one of the reasons why it's an essential doctrine. Another reason why it's an essential doctrine is because it established, the Georgian birth established for us to see that this was uh, God as Jesus' father rather than Joseph. That is that Jesus was born of divine origins. Um, he is part of the Godhead. He is, uh, has divine blood running through Emmanuel's veins. And then we saw also last week a third reason why this is an essential doctrine is because by Jesus coming into the world through means of supernatural means, he was not born under the curse like you and I are. When Adam sinned in the garden, one of the results was that you and I would be born with a fallen nature, with a sinful nature. And so Jesus was not born with a sinful nature, which would, as Wesley um, asserted, would always result in us sinning. Jesus not being born with a sinful nature was born or came into the world like Adam came into the world, certainly with the potential to sin, but yet for the 33 years of his life and the many temptations that he experienced, he never once violated any of God's uh, moral laws. And so that's why we saw, so again, we saw the significance of the virgin birth for Jesus theologically. But this week what we're going to do is take a look at the virgin birth and how it was significant for Mary and what, that, what the virgin birth meant for her. Um, so our text comes from actually what Sherman and Michelle read just a little bit ago, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, and then verse 38. I'm going to ask if you would to stand back to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Again, we stand week in and week out to be reminded that this is where truth comes from. Amen? Uh, it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks. It doesn't matter what they told you at work this past week. It doesn't matter what you heard on the radio. Uh, the only thing that matters is what God thinks, friends, and we don't have to wonder because he wrote it down. So we stand week in and week out to be reminded of that. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, the story of the virgin birth. Here comes the angel to announce this news to Mary. Here we go, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Skip forward to verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So let's kind of dive in here and just take a look at this story again, considering what did the virgin birth mean for Mary. So look at verse 26 with me. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Now, what we discover in this verse is a possible way to date when Jesus was born, his birthday. You say, what do you mean, Gordon? I thought he was born on December 25th. Well, hate to break the news to you. Uh, but December 25th was a date that was established by Constantine. He was the Roman emperor, and he wanted to convert the, uh, or not convert so much, but just wanted to make the Roman empire no longer a pagan empire, but rather a Christian nation, a Christian uh, 
nation, what, empire, whatever you want to call that. And so what he did was he took the winter solstice that the, the people used to celebrate, uh, pagan worship, Roman people, and he said, hey, look, instead of celebrating the winter solstice and our pagan gods, let's take this time of year to remember the birth of Jesus Christ. And so the winter solstice ended on December 25th, and so that's the date that he placed for Jesus' birthday. Um, you say, well, if it's not December 25th, then when was Jesus born? Well, the text tells us here that she was visited by an angel in the sixth month. If we assume that Mary gets pregnant the same month that the angel comes to her, the sixth month, to tell her this, uh, then we can kind of start to piece together. We can take nine months from that sixth month and count out and kind of figure out when Jesus' birthday lands. So i got a slide for you here. This is the Jewish calendar. And you can see uh, that it starts with the month of Nisan, and it goes all the way through to the end there, the 12 months of the Jewish calendar. Um, you notice that their, month, their year does not begin, calendar year does not begin when ours does. So the Greco-Roman calendar dates are kind of, months are listed there next to it. So their calendar year begins around our March or April, kind of in the middle of all that. Um, and if you look at, uh, so, so that's the secondary column there. So everybody with me so far? Okay. Um, one more piece of data is that on the Jewish month, they follow the cycles of the moons, which means that their months are only 29 days long. And so when you multiply 12 months of the Jewish year to, to by 29 days, you end up with 348 days in their calendar year, which means that if you don't start put throwing in some serious leap year action, you're going to end up with September in the middle of the summer. Um, and so what the way they would do this is they would just add a 13th month, an extra month at the end of the Jewish year. They would do it seven times every 19 years. So every 19 years, hope you can follow this, but every 19 years, seven times throughout 19 years, they would add in an extra month. I'm trying not to confuse you here. I'm actually trying to explain something. Um, but in any case, so about every two to three years, you'd get an extra month of the year. And so what they do is they just take the month of Adar and they would just double it. So they'd have a dar one and they'd have a dar two. And so um, what, this, what this is telling us here is that Jesus was born the sixth month. So the sixth month on their calendar was the month of Elul. You see that there. And so we can count nine months of her gestation period and we land on the month of Er. Right? You do a little math there. So land on the month of Er, which lands kind of in our time of the year of April or May. Now, if this was a leap year month, right? <laughs> following there. If this was a leap year for the Jewish calendar, then that means you got to add that extra month in, which backs up Jesus' birthday to the month of Nisan. So Jesus more than likely would have been born around March or April. And I think that that's the case because when, G because when you read the narrative, the Bible story here, it says that there were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night right outside of Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem is a little town about six miles southwest of Jerusalem. And in between Bethlehem at the time of Christ was a place called the Hills of Ramos. This is not, has nothing to do with the rest of the sermon, by the way. I'm just throwing this out here, right? So just absorb it. Take it in. Whatever. Do, what, do away with it. Whatever, do with it whatever you want. But um, there was these places called the Hills of Ramos, and that's where the, um, the Passover lambs would pasture in the months or in the time lead, weeks leading up to Passover. Uh, that these hundreds of thousands of lambs would be grazing out there on these hills. And so that's why there would have been shepherds outside of Bethlehem keeping watch over their Passover lambs by night. And so more than likely, we don't know exactly the date. I'm sure there's probably some scholars that have tried to identify an exact day in which Jesus was born, perhaps. I don't know if that's possible, but more than likely he was a spring baby. Again, do, that, do with that information whatever you want to. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Take a look at a map here. You can see the region of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. It's the territory that surrounds the Sea of Galilee, and Nazareth is west of that body of water. Here's another map. 
Uh, it's a topographical map, or sort of quasi-topographical map. And you can see Nazareth there. It sits in a cluster of mountains or craggy hills, again, west of the Sea of Galilee. When you get into the city itself and you're standing in Nazareth, um, you look around and you can see that the city is actually situated in a basin. Um, and there's these craggy hills surrounding the city of Nazareth. Um, at the time of Christ, uh, this area was less than accessible. It's a big city. Nazareth is a big city today, but back then it was a very small town. Um, and this was because there were no main roads that passed through this area at the time of Christ. That is, there was no I-85, there was no I-20, there was nothing crisscrossing through Nazareth. Nobody was coming and going through Nazareth on their way to other places. Nazareth was not situated along a main thoroughfare in any way, which means Nazareth was a remote town. It was an isolated community. It was up in the hill country. It was way out, way, way, way out from uh, the rest of, you know, civilization. It was in the middle of nowhere. Uh, slide here, one of the slides here shows you the population of Nazareth at the time of Christ. Ar archaeologists have estimated that the population of Nazareth at the time of Christ was around 400 people. I mean, that is small town, right? 400 people. Um, that's less than a one-light town. That makes Mayberry look like Metropolis. That makes, that's a town of only probably one church in that town. And they may have only had worship one Sunday out of the month, right? So like second Sundays, the preacher, itinerant preacher would come through and they'd hold services. That's a town where the cemetery and the, plot, and the names on the cemetery plots were probably all a lot of the same last names, right? That's a town where you have a one in three chance of graduating valedictorian. In other words, there was not a whole lot happening in Nazareth. This was a small town. Hang on to that for just a minute. Look at verse 27. It says, The angel Gabriel was sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So Mary is betrothed to Joseph. We said last week that their betrothal period was different than our engagement period. It had some legal teeth to it. Uh, these were two people who were committed. They knew that they were going to be getting married to one another. Uh, the families had all agreed on this. And so there was a legal arrangement there. And so it wasn't just so simple for them to break that up if they wanted to break that up. Uh, they knew that they were going to be getting married. The husband-to-be would be getting house set up. Uh, perhaps he'd be adding on a room to his father's house, or <clears throat> maybe he bought a new farm and he was getting things ready at the new farm for his new family to move into. Now, nevertheless, uh, so in, in their day, girls would get engaged or betrothed as early as 12 years of age. Now, they didn't necessarily get married at 12 years of age, but they would get betrothed as early as 12 years of age, and then that pledge could last for a years, three years, four years, eight years, until finally she and the young man were ready to get married. But whether it was four months or four years of betrothal between Mary and Joseph, we don't know. Do you suppose that the people of Nazareth, a town of only 400 people, right, with a whole lot of the same last name, knew that Mary and Joseph were engaged to one another? High likelihood, right? I'm sure the other girls in town saw Joseph walking across and said, he's taken. I'm sure some of the other guys in town saw Mary walking off to the well or heading off to go do something at the market and said, you know, there's a young lady. Nope, she's taken. She's, that's Joseph's gal. Right? I'm sure everybody in town knew that. Now, there's this angel that's standing in front of Mary, and the angel tells her, Mary, plan to be expecting. Get the nursery ready. Paint it blue. The angel Gabriel says, verse 31, And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Friends, that scandal 
I'm sorry, that announcement has scandal written all over it. That announcement that Mary's going to have a child, she's 15, maybe 16 years of age, uh, she's unmarried, everybody in town knows that she's unmarried, it's got all sorts of uh, problems arising. Everyone knows that the wedding has not happened yet, they all know this because they've all got to save the date, right? May I also press that this is a Jewish religious community. They may not have been as orthodox as the Jews down in Jerusalem, but they certainly knew God's laws and they observed God's laws. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 2, it says, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. And even until the 10th generation, there was such stringent uh, rules about this sort of thing. Can you imagine the kind of talk around church on that second Sunday when folks would gather? I mean, this is juicy news, or it soon will be. The gossip networks are going to light up, and Mary will be the object of much of their discussion and their personal character assassination. Let me stop here for a second and say that churches should not behave like this. Now, I usually hold off on my what difference all this makes, right? We'll get to that question in a little bit. But I think it's important for us at this juncture just to say that churches should not um, operate this way. Rather, we should be supporting and loving one another, loving one another, especially when we make mistakes, especially when we find ourselves in moments of crises. The last thing that any one of us in a situation like this needs is for your or my judgment. Amen? All right. How about Mary's family? What are grandma and grandpa going to say? What are mom and dad going to think? What are my brothers and sisters going to think? I'm sure that they're going to get teased by the other kids around the schoolyard, and they're going to be fighting, and, hey, aren't you Mary's sister? And, ah, the things that get said, right? And, of course, there's Joseph. What's Joseph going to say? Remember, Mary could be executed for this level of betrayal. It's not Joseph's baby. Mary knows Joseph to be a kind man, an honorable man. She can't imagine that he would go to that extreme. But... Will he still marry me? What of our life together? I imagine she figures this is the end of whatever plans they had made. Add to her concerns that women did not work outside of the home. And so if Joseph won't marry her, if her family won't take her in, Mary could very quickly find herself in a desperate situation. Mary's hopes hang on a story about an angel that visits her. And tells her that she's going to conceive by supernatural means. Joseph, I know how this sounds. But I'm telling you the truth. You say to Joseph, believer, no, he did not. It says over Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19 that Joseph was writing Mary a letter of divorce when the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him in verse 20, Joseph, fear not to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And this angel visiting Joseph convinced him that this indeed would be a supernatural conception. And so he joins Mary, and he becomes part of the scandalous story. Joseph could have cleared his name. He could have dismissed her. He could have told everybody in town, this is not my baby. This is not my doing. I didn't have anything to do with this. Instead, he took Mary as his wife. He said, I got a big back. Let the arrows fly. And he shielded his young family as best he could. So that's Joseph's response. How about Mary's response? Well, look at verse 38. Here's Mary's response. She says, verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. 
Think about that. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then a few verses later, verse 46, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. Verse 47, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You see her spirit, her response to this? Verse 48, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, and I am blessed. Verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me. What was Mary's perspective? She said, my soul magnifies God because of this news. And the Lord has done a great thing for me. Mary's perspective of what should have been the object of her shame was the reverse. She viewed this unplanned pregnancy with all of its uncertainties and potential risks as the greatest blessing and the greatest honor ever to be bestowed on any woman ever. And if that meant that she had to endure dirty looks and little comments and not getting invited to play dates with baby Jesus and other moms around town, so be it. Even if this meant that her own family would not receive her, she was willing to suffer the humiliation and the isolation, for she knew what God had done for her. She knew how God needed her, and she was willing to go to whatever lengths the Lord required. She said, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. It's remarkable. Well, that's our text for today, our treatment of this story. And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? Um, you say, Gordon, I'm not pregnant. I'm not planning on becoming pregnant. You're right. So what, what, what difference does any of this make to me? Well, let's talk about that. <clears throat> As we consider the words of the Magnificat or the Song of Mary, where we read there in verse 36 where she says, Uh, My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has done great things for me. As we consider her response to the angel, let it be to me. I cannot help, as I read through that, but be struck by her willingness to take this on. I mean, her response was very immediate. It was just obedience. She was willing to take whatever the Lord sent her. This represents significant sacrifice, remember? This is going to alter her life for the rest of her life. This will be a point of public embarrassment that will follow her. It will follow her marriage. It will follow her son, Jesus' life, for the rest of his life. In fact, there's an occasion in the Scriptures over in the Gospel of John where Jesus is a grown man, 33 years of age. He's in the middle of his public ministry, out doing his preaching ministry, and some Pharisees walk up to him, and they say to him, John chapter 8 and verse 41, well, at least we were not born of sexual immorality. Think about that. This was so widely known amongst the people in Nazareth, and word spread as Jesus' reputation spread, spread, this news spread with him. And Mary, she's not got her head in the sand. She's very aware of what this is going to mean. She's likely seen other girls in similar situations, yet she embraces God's plan for her life anyway. May I ask this morning, are you at a place in your walk with God? Where if the Lord says to you, go here, go there, do this, do that, would you do it? 
Are you at a place of trust and intimacy with him where you would not question or hesitate at the Lord's command? Would you willingly embrace like Mary did his plan for your life and say, I am your servant, let it be to me? Would you pray like Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done? You wonder where he learned that prayer. You know, there's only two wills in all of the world. Two wills. There's God's will, and there's everybody else's. You pretty much just throw everybody else's in the one bucket, right? There's the way, the way God wants things to go, and then there's the way the world wants things to go. And that's why Jesus instructed us to pray, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10, Your will be done here on earth the way that it's done in heaven. And how is God's will done in heaven? Well, friends, it's done immediately. It's done without question. It's done without arguing. It's done without whining. It's done without any sort of a negotiation. When God says to the angels to go, the angels go. Would that we have a similar response to God's will here on earth. You say, Gordon, I got a question for you. How am I supposed to know then what God's will is? How am I supposed to find that? I mean, I, I hadn't had an angel visit me lately right? How am I supposed to know what it is that God's asking of me? How am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to do? How am I supposed to figure that out? Well, there's two kinds of God's wills. There's his general will, and then there's his specific will. Let's talk about those. The general will covers the whole scope of life, and the best way for me to explain this is really, as I was kind of thinking about it, is just to ask you a question. Here's my question. Would you stay in a failing marriage if God said to stay? Because over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, God's general will is for us to stay in our marriage. Question number two, parents, are you actively teaching your children about God's word? Because you know what? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, God tells us when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, that we are to teach our children diligently. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, the scriptures instruct fathers, do not provoke your child to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Friends, the general will of God is written for us to know. It's all over scripture. And on and on we could go. It's amazing to me how often in our discussions about God's will, we fail to take into account what he has instructed us. It's written right under our noses. And this is part of why we need to be reading our Bibles, part of why we need to be reminded of what God's will is, as it reminds us of what God's will is. Now, I know that was meddling. <laughs> I know that was a little sneaky of me, but I wanted to make the point today. So I hope that that made the point for you. Second, God's, what is, uh, God's will is also specific, God's specific will. Um, let me, and this is where God speaks to us in ways that uh, he would, something that he wants for Gordon uniquely to do. Something that he wants uniquely for, for Kenny to do. And so these are God's specific will. Now, you're not going to find a verse in here that tells you what God's specific will is for your life. Like, you can't find a verse in here that says, Gordon, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. That, that I can't read through there and find that, that statement. Now, God may use his word to in, communicate to me what his specific will is. But there's not some verse in the Bible that's written just for Gordon that will tell me what God's specific will is. Um, so how do we find God's specific will? The only way I know to tell you 
is to go get quiet before the Lord. And this is not something that you do once. It's not something that you do twice and expect after 30 minutes that you're going to walk out of your room and say, I now know what God's will is because I've spent a half an hour in prayer. God, friends, God wants to speak to your heart. God wants to tell you what his specific will is for your life. He wants you in his employ. But before he can tell you what his will is, he needs you to be at a place where you can accept what he tells you. And in order for you to be a place where he can accept what he wants to tell you, something like, hey, I got some news for you, Mary. You're going to have a baby. Before Mary could come to a place where she was willing to say, let it be to me, there's got to be a lot of time that precedes that and quiet before the Lord, surrendering ourselves over to whatever his will might be. So to, um, now please recognize that Mary was 15 years of age. This is not something that you know, has to happen when you're 30 or 40 or 60. This can happen at any age, but it requires, first of all, proceeded before God speaks his specific will into our life for us to come to a place of quiet, where we are at peace with God, where we are at peace with others, where we are at peace with ourselves. And then when the news comes, there is no hesitation, there is no complaining, there is no kicking, there is no negotiation, there is only obedience. Um, I got a picture for you here of a guy by the name of Samuel Logan Brengel. I don't know if anybody in here has ever heard of Samuel Logan Brengel. If there is, tell me after church, I'll be shocked. Uh, but Samuel Logan Brengel was a spiritual special. Uh, he was basically a, a traveling evangelist in the Salvation Army. Um, he was born in 1860. I think it says he died in 1930s, somewhere around there. Um, and so um, he led thousands, tens of thousands of people uh, to Jesus Christ. Um, this, he just had a gift of oratory. He had a gift of, of sharing the gospel. Um, but his, he had very humble beginnings. And let me just share a little bit about his story. Samuel Logan Bringle was born in Fredericksburg, Indiana, on June 1st of 1860. Two years later, his father died uh, from wounds that he received during the Great Civil War. Brangle grew up no stranger to poverty. His mother provided all that she could on their little family farm. She would later remarry, and her new husband, he didn't like staying in one place for very long, so the family was constantly moving around and relocating. Brangle grew up with a strong determination to make something of himself. He was, a diligent, he was diligent in his studies at school. His teachers recommended that he had an aptitude for this and said, hey, you really ought to go on and consider more schooling and head to college. His mother agreed. Brangle would attend DePaul University just 15 miles away from the family home. While he was a student there, Brangle began to feel the tug of God upon his heart. The Lord was calling him into evangelistic ministry. And again, Brangle knew this. He just sensed that this is where the Lord was leading him. But he also had a lot of debt. How was he going to pay off his schooling, traveling around the countryside, preaching in open-air meetings? Brangle shared his concerns in a prayer. He prayed, and I quote, "'Lord, I am $500 in debt in my education.'" If I go into evangelistic work, how can I go about the country preaching holiness with these debts unpaid? And at this time, uh, Brangle had been offered a position as a pastor of a prominent Methodist church in Illinois. This church had just built a brand new building. They had a, a marvelous benefactor that had made all this happen. Um, and it was a pulpit that had a commanding salary and all these sorts of things. And he was torn between what to do. Should I go take this uh, prominent position as a pastor of this 
beautiful church or should I follow where I sense the Lord's leading me into this evangelistic ministry? Maybe I do that for a little while and then I go to evangelistic ministry. Or maybe I do both at the same time. I wasn't quite sure. And so he writes this. He says, on the one side, the Studebaker church with its big salary, its important place, its wide pulpit. On the other side, evangelistic work with its prospect of debts, uncertainty, itinerancy. How can I decide? And the Holy Spirit comes to Brangle's aid, and Brangle was reminded through the Holy Spirit of Jesus' words in Matthew 6 and verse 31, and I'll read these for you, where Jesus said, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall I eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall I wear? In verse 33, Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. And then Brangle says he heard the whisper of God speak to him, saying, and I quote, I thought I heard God whisper himself whisper to my heart, can you not trust me? Can I not supply your every need? And with that, Bringle pulled out pen and paper and wrote a letter of thanks, but declined the offer in Illinois. Again, Bringle would go on to join the Salvation Army. He would have a tremendous career as an evangelist. He conducted two- and three-day open-air evangelistic meetings all across the Americas, in England as well. He got drunks sober. He preached desperation out of the desperate and gave them the hope of Christ, led people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Friends, a life in the hands of God will always count more for eternity than we by our own craftiness could possibly manufacture. Let me say that for you again. A life in the hands of God will always count more for eternity than we by our own craftiness could possibly manufacture. But God cannot turn us out inside out for his glory. He cannot use our lives for the maximum for his benefit and for his glory until we first come to the place where we're willing to say, like Mary said, Lord, I am yours. I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Friends, this Christmas season, may we find a quiet place and bid the Lord to go to work in our hearts. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you this morning for the fresh reminder from the lips of your earthly mother. She taught you to pray, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, we thank you for her obedience. We thank you for her willingness to sacrifice and suffer. Lord, may we see in our own lives that same kind of desire to follow your lead wherever that may take us, whatever that may require of us. Lord, come to us in our quiet place. Prepare our hearts to receive your good news. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your broken body for your shed blood. We know that a relationship with you in eternity in heaven is not possible without it. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for your willingness to go to the cross, to give of yourself, to empty yourself, to be humiliated on our behalf. 
We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts during this time of quiet. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.